very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And by now you know your way around, just click on the subscribe button of our website, subscribe, and you'll get your login immediately, which will give you access to hundreds of hours of truth. Why wait? Subscribe today. Unlike our computers, our life sometimes needs an upgrade, but we don't know what upgrade to give it. But listen to Sanitas, and I guarantee you, you will give your life an upgrade. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a recommendation or suggestion, or simply just want to write to me, I'd love to hear from you. Just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Yes, we are all victims of our paradigms. What we don't know can and will hurt us. Our ignorance has turned us into the slaves of our own delusions, where ignorance isn't bliss, but a form of massive self-deception. No, we are not safe. No, the danger won't go away if we choose to ignore it. And yes, you will experience a shift in perception. The world isn't as it seems. The map is not complete. It never was. Tonight, we discuss politics, banking, money, education, health, and more from a very different perspective. If you choose to listen tonight, you will do so at your own risk. Because after all, you're a victim too. You just might not know it. But I personally refuse to engage in victimhood mentality. I refuse to give in our power, or my devotion to anything or anyone. That is why we discuss what others refuse to refuse or ignore. And I'm glad you're with us tonight, so we can enlighten our path to the truth. Tonight's special guest is Leonardo Wild, an author, director, and screenwriter with 11 books and 200 published articles, as well as 42 produced scripts. Although he wears many hats, writing has been his livelihood and passion since the age of 12. Currently, the CEO and co-owner of a company dedicated to environmental solutions, Wild has traveled extensively, sailed across the Atlantic and the Pacific, was the skipper of a $1 million, yeah, million dollar yacht at the age of 24 in New Zealand, and in 1989 survived a Cyclone Harry, a Category 4. He walked three times over the Andes into the Amazon jungle with native Indians, took part in gold survey expeditions in Ecuador's rainforest, 
cycled across South America, built wooden houses, advised Ecuador's central bank on currency design. These and many other experiences are invariably being weaved into his writing. His website is leonardowild.com, which is also linked at ours. And Leonardo is, in my opinion, truly a renaissance man, and he joins us directly from Ecuador. Hello, Leonardo. Welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. Hello. How are you doing? Hello, everybody. Excellent. At first, I must ask you, I'm happy to hear your voice, but every time I speak with my friends in Ecuador, Great Caton and others, you now, I'm always wondering, did you feel the tremor this morning? Another big earthquake wasn't there. Yeah, we had one around 3 a.m., and uh, I was wondering whether I should get up or not. I have a pretty well-built house that should stand, I hope, an eight or eight and a half, if not more. But my wife woke up, and she decided to scream and run out with their children, so <laughs> it all went out. And then we had one at six, uh, 6.8 six uh, at around, uh, nearly noon uh, today, again, another one. They say these are aftershocks, but I don't quite believe it. What do you think is really happening? Because I've seen a lot, you know, years ago we had Chile with a lot of earthquakes. Now we have Ecuador. What What's really going on? Not to get too conspiratorial right from the beginning. Which version do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Your version. I, I think that, I mean, uh, the version that uh, most people and uh, current geological theory uh, would bring is that uh, you have the Nazca plate as going under the... In this case, it's not really the South American plate, but the Caribbean plate, even though it's in South America. I can tell you more about that a bit later. Um, and because it moves at a certain rate per year, it doesn't actually manage to go under it. Every so often, you have to have a, a release of this energy. And I heard over 20 years ago that they should expect an 8.5 to a 9, which is like uh, 10 times more powerful than the one we had on 7.8. It's an algorithmic, uh, uh, you know, uh, scale, basically. And um, I'm going to turn this uh, phone off because <laughs> I didn't realize I had to turn it off. Okay, so basically what happens is that when these uh, plates shift, uh, whatever makes them shift, the real energy gets released and then everything shakes, you know. Uh, in, in our case, I mean, the 6.7 and a 6.8 we had today, you would need 10 of those to release the energy of the one we had about a month ago. So uh, in, we would need 10 of the ones from a month ago to actually release most of the energy which is in the plate at the, at the time. So we could expect more of these to come. Can we find some patterns on these, you know, after aftershocks or earthquakes? Can we actually predict the next big one time-wise and location-wise? Uh, not really. I mean, we're talking about complex systems here, and uh, you may find a general pattern, but uh, prediction would mean a specific uh, location and timing for that. In general terms, the pattern is that these things happen over a course of uh, dec decades, you know, and uh, if you happen to, to be in that decade, you'll probably get one of those. Uh, the last really big one happened in nine. 1904, I think it was, that caused a tsunami that killed people in Japan and killed like 1,500 people around the world due to the tsunami. It was a 9-2, I forget exactly. Yeah, well, about 100 years ago. The other thing is that we have the 
a few things that people don't really know is that we have the megafold, what they call the Guayaquil-Caracas megafold. It goes from the Gulf of Guayaquil all the way to Caracas, which makes San Andreas Fault look like a small one. And that one hasn't gone off in a long time, and I can actually look out the window right now and look at it and see it. It's not far from where I live. Well, it's not that Caracas needs any more problems right now. They're under martial law, and uh, all it takes is an earthquake to just uh, tip the scale as we see it there. They don't need it anymore. But now going back to your work, your latest book, you're an author. You've written many books, mm -hmm. uh, The Galapagos uh, Agenda, which is a paradigm shift thriller. Now my question to you first is, are you really writing fiction or is it faction? Commercially, you would call it fiction. But when you read it, <clears throat> you may change your, your paradigm about the novel as well. <laughs> um, the events that I describe are fictitious events in terms of the actual storyline. But uh, what inspired me are real uh, life events and uh, other research that has taken me to try to write in a you know, fictitious way some of the things that are going on today for various reasons. You know, one of them is that most uh, people will not read faction or nonfiction unless they already have an interest in the subject matter. <clears throat> and um, they will actually, many will read fiction, you know, uh, without even expecting much. So the title and uh, what you will see in the novel will not really prepare you for anything that's in it, except some general line about, you know, corporate uh, world corruption and, and stuff like that. But as you read it, the idea is that without you realizing it, by the time you as a, uh, read, as a reader, when you finish the novel, you will have shifted, hopefully, your paradigm about a specific uh, thing. In this case, uh, the topic would be politics and the profile of people in positions of power. And we'll get back to this because it's almost like an arc. <clears throat> With every book that you write, you're trying to shift everybody's mindset in that way and waking people up that, that way. But just you're new on Veritas. This is your, your maiden voyage with me today to give a perspective to the listeners who don't know who you are. Let's begin from the beginning. Who's Leonardo Weil? How did you wind up in Ecuador, your family, and so on? Well, my grandfather... Uh, was Swiss and he came to Ecuador in 1936 with a bunch of Swiss friends uh, <clears throat> escaping the economic difficulties they had there pre-war, pre-World War II. Ecuador was offering uh, free land at the moment. Uh, they didn't say where it was, so they came all in, in hopes to have a better life down here. And it turns out that the lands were be being given was uh, actually land that Uh, nobody lived there, uh, not even Native Indians, because it was harsh environments. In this case, on the slopes of the Andes towards the coastal plains, really humid, really steep. And actually, some people didn't really make it. Uh, some returned to, to Switzerland, a few stayed. And my father was born in Quito, in, uh, uh, yeah, in, in the city here. Uh, back then, it was a small city. Now it's a metropolis. And uh, so he's Ecuadorian, Swiss Ecuadorian. Um, when my parents uh, got together, I can talk, talk about more about that if you're interested. But when my parents 
decided to you know marry. My mother was uh, German. She passed away about a, last November. Um, Sorry to hear that. And she, yeah, and she came to Ecuador when she was 22 in a banana freighter to marry my father, uh, who was basically living here with his father, who was at the time running a sawmill for balsa wood. They were married for five years. They were doing yoga back then and other, you know, activities to try to lead a better life, always searching. And uh, with no children for five years, they decided to maybe go and study something in New York. And I messed up their plans when they arrived there within that year I was born. I keep on saying that I'm the cause of the second uh, big blackout in New York or something like that or vice versa. I don't know. (laughs) And uh, then they decided not to have a child in the city, in in the States, because the environment is not appropriate for that. And they went to Puerto Rico where my father had a scholarship. He was studying theology. Is that right? I didn't know that part. Yeah, he was studying theology. He went to study psychology, but there were no uh, scholarships for that. So he ended up studying theology. And um, they studied there, you know, stayed there for three years, three and a half years. And then he graduated in Cambridge in, in Boston. And then uh, they moved to Columbia for a year where he was, you know, evangelical, not evangelical, uh, Episcopalian. Episcopalian. Yeah. Um, and then to Ecuador, and then he had a bit of argument with the bishop here and ended up leaving the church and started with my uncle and uh, some American investors, an organic farm, actually a hacienda, a bigger one, 520 hectares, which for Ecuador is big, back in the early 70s when nobody spoke or knew about organic or biofuel or any of that. But it so happened that during the... That that decade, that's when the whole, uh, you know, first world banking scam started. Uh, and the By the way, 522 was, acres, about 1,300, I'm sorry, 522 hectares, hectares it's about 1,300 acres. Yes, something like that. It's it's okay. I mean, it's it, I know that in the States you have uh, locations where you have farms that are almost as big as Ecuador, but for here it's quite big. <laughs> right. <laughs> So then they imported 52 pure Holstein cows from Canada by plane. Two of them died because of the altitude. We're talking about 8,000 feet high altitude for the farm. And uh, they were actually working 24-7 preparing the ground because it was a type of ground called Kangawa, which is really, really hard soil. Nothing grew on it. They planted 25,000 trees to be able to, uh, you know, bring this totally barren land to be productive. And just as they were starting with the, you know, biogas project and, and all that, uh, the bank basically took the took the whole hacienda because they said they would give a loan and then they said no. By the time they were so indebted, it was one of those tricks they were doing with uh, the third world all over the place, you know. Uh, Calling the notes? Yeah, just saying basically, yeah, yeah, we're going to give you the loan and you get, you keep on getting a loan that will be then refinanced with their long-term loan. And then they said, no, sir, we won't give it to you and you won't have the money to pay for it. So now we want it back, oh, collateral. Yeah, that's what they do. You know, they, they want it collateral. And um, it's just out of the book, uh, you know, the confessions of a kind of hitman at the same time, more, more or less, you know. 
And uh, so they, they then started an alternative educational project uh, called the Pestalozzi Kindergarten. Nothing to do with Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi schools in, in, in the world. It was just a name that my father, being Swiss background, uh, decided to use that instead of Maria Montessori, which was what he wanted. <laughs> right. Um, my mother had been studying since I was a child, a year old, uh, Maria Montessori, and he began taking the courses, uh, Maria Montessori courses in Britain to become an instructor and a, and a teacher in that method, you know. So basically education and alternative uh, farming and all that has been really part of my, my life, uh, you know, my regular paradigm. Um, How many languages uh, do you speak? Uh, well, German a little bit, uh, English a little bit, and oh, uh, Spanish. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I learned English when I was 18. I didn't know English before. Wow. Even though I have an American passport, I was living here in Ecuador, and and I learned when I went sailing to Tahiti on a you know American-run sailboat, and then started writing in English. I didn't write in English before. And when you and I were speaking a, a few days ago, we were discussing your family and so on. And now that you're saying that truly what you wanted was the Montessori method, which your father created with a different name, but you told me that you took your children or you didn't take your children to school. You're actually um, basically educating them yourself. Can you explain that? Well, the, it's not that we educate themselves, ourselves. What happened is that my parents started school like in 1977 uh, near Quito. And uh, the school grew, and from three children had 180 some years later. And my daughter Miranda, who's now 17, she went to it in kindergarten, and then my second son went to it as well. But then they shut the school down for various reasons. Uh, one of them, the whole thing with the economy, economy, uh, then the politics and the different changes. The government was breaking basically the agreements they had with the school, alternative school what they call an experimental school. And uh, so they decided to close that, and they went to another project called uh, the CEPAS, which is uh, in Spanish for uh, Centers for Autonomous Activities. And so it's not that we had them homeschooled. They're basically preparing environments where the children play with different things in a non-directive way. There is no teaching going on. There are no exams. Uh, there are no... Uh, the curriculum is that they have to follow by a certain time. This is a different type of education. They call it non-directive education. It's more like guidance, letting the kids go, but with some guidance, let them learn on their own. Yes, yes. I mean, that's what uh, we do all the time anyway. Uh, it's like you have a plant and uh, you want you don't tell a plant how to grow, when to give fruit. Everything is inside the plant. They know it, it knows basically genetically and by other means when it should sprout, when it should grow this and when it should give fruit. And uh, we are in a similar way as human beings, more complex than that, but it's quite similar. If you give an environment to children uh, where they get everything they need according to the development stages, Piaget comes to mind, then they will actually uh, be always doing what they need to do biologically at the time. And if you have the environment, the whole curriculum that you need, culturally speaking, then they will actually absorb all that uh, quite, quite quickly. And not just know, but come to understand with concrete materials. Montessori was just a starting point for this educational system. 
um, and it grew to to more than just that. My parents were given then over 20 years conferences and uh, workshops in Europe. Oh, when you, when you think about how, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it, when you look at how things were, for example, in the 60s when I was born and all my siblings, everybody was born C-section because we were told that that was healthier. And then there was no breastfeeding because we were they were told that formula was better. So we're always saying that nature is wrong and we are right. And instead of um, feeding the children or the babies on demand when they were hungry, they were fed on a schedule. So yeah. if the kid cried, 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 but it was an hour away from feeding, that means the child is internalizing that, hey, I want this, but you're not giving it to me. Imagine all the psychological issues that we go through ever since we were born. Let's not even talk about circumcision. I don't mean to digress with what you're saying, but I can see why some people decide, I'm going to take my kid out of this system and put it in my system. Exactly. And these are the things that drove me to then going back to my writing to write so-called fiction. Because unless you're interested in Maria Montessori or in Piaget or in educational systems or whatever paradigm you're talking about, you will usually only go and grab a book that, or a film or a, watch a documentary on the subject if you already have a, a sense of that you're looking for something like that. And uh, in many cases, people don't know that they're looking for something until they actually have a, have a taste of it. And if you're given that taste through a very you know, a thrilling novel, then suddenly they realize, wait a minute, there's more to it here. And they start researching. They can open doors to those people who, basically, as it were, are not quite awake yet. It's like the seed is there. Give them some water, and it will start sprouting. In your case, because you, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but you grew up more in a rural, or today you you live in a rural area, but you also spent time in the city. You seem to have a perspective that's very unique. You have a you know European descent. You travel the world. You see things in Ecuador, which seems to, to be one of those places around the world where it seems to be detached from the matrix in a way, even though I know the government has to be attached to the, the matrix somehow. But can you give us why you think that all your experiences seem to carry a different perspective than the average person? Um, it's actually quite a simple uh, answer with a complex result. The simple answer is that I was exposed to these different types of environments. I was exposed to organic, uh, not farming. It was normal for me. I was exposed to a uh, different educational system, even though I didn't go to the school myself. I was already too old for it. It was for my younger brother, who they started kindergarten for. I did go to the one they had in Colombia, a little kindergarten in, in Cali. I was there a year. So I had experiences in the early childhood. But when I was 12, my father told me, if you don't uh, want to go to school anymore, you don't have to. And that's illegal. As you know, the world doesn't allow right. free-running children. Uh, didn't mean chicken, children. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and then I saw that. I mean, basically, all my friends were all in, you know, in these uh, buildings uh, being conditioned. And uh, parents of my friends were telling me that I was going to be a nobody because I didn't go and follow the school system. Um, that experience itself led me to realize that, wait a minute, uh, there is more to what people tell you that is right or wrong or real a reality. 
And then uh, my parents started to, you know, to also explore the whole thing with alternative economy. It so happened that my grandfather, whom I mentioned before, he and his friends actually came with ideas of Silvio Gesell for alternative currencies to try to start something here, an, an alternative currency in Ecuador back in the early, you know, uh, late 30s. And uh, then my, my does, father... Does Ecuador, does Ecuador print its own currency? Uh, only coins, the change. The dollar is printed in the U.S. It's outsourced. Yeah. But I yeah. guess what I'm saying is, it's is, it, is the central bank truly Ecuadorian or do we have a Federal Reserve-like entity behind it? No, the, the central bank in Ecuador is a central bank here, but they have okay. different purposes. And they are allowed to change, I mean, to, to coin, not print, coin the change from the, the dollar coins, I think 50 cents, not 25 cents or something like that. That some of them are not, not uh, exportable to the states because of the Ecuadorian half dollar cent. But everything else, I think it's also a matter of economics because uh, they wouldn't be able to haul down by airplane or ship down a bunch of coins. You know, it's easy to make it here. Um, but the whole economy of Ecuador is based on the dollar since 1999. And there's a reason for that as well. So, no, it's not basically a, a Federal Reserve entity. They actually have to import. Uh, money, uh, physical printed money from the states every so often to replace the bills that have been used up and, and all that. So basically, you're, you're basically using Federal Reserve notes, just like Panama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a U.S. dollar. Right, correct. So that's why when I said that, obviously, you're tapped into the matrix, that, that that's exactly what I meant. Now, from all your experiences, what do you see truly from your perspective in Ecuador, because in the United States, we're very hermetic here when it comes to media. We discuss a lot of what's happening in the United States and a very filtered version of what's happening outside of the United States. From your perspective, where you are, what do you see from there, from the top of your hill, if you know what I mean? About the States or about Ecuador? Both. Ecuador, <laughs> the United States, and the world. Um... What do I see? Well, for me, I mean, I, I don't know if uh, we spoke about this. I have been researching the whole thing with money, monetary systems, for over 18 years. I wrote a book on monetary engineering that hasn't come out in English. It's in Spanish. It came out in 2011. And uh, I, uh, I have researched that more than Joe Public. And what I, what I see basically is that these, uh, you know, Economic uh, shifts that we see, these tsunamis that you know break down economies, they're all since since the early 20th century. They're all basically manipulated. Of course. And, um, and but most people don't know that. You know, most people don't realize that this is this is happening. They think money is some mysterious entity that is uh, self-controlled. I think it's a national. It's a natural cycle, just like a hurricane comes along in the summer. Yeah, yeah. And those natural cycles, uh, you know, for money do exist. They're called the Kondratiev cycles. Kondratiev, he believed that it was a technological cycle that every uh, few generations, every 70 years or so, you have these, these uh, you know, economic slumps that lead to uh, an economic collapse that then the whole thing comes back out. But really what's behind it is the cycle of the economic system, of the monetary system, to be specific. Uh, 
And what I see is that uh, in order to come out of these uh, uh, economic slumps, depressions, they call them, uh, there always is what they call the peak war. And that peak war in what I see is in the case of the U.S. is exported. It doesn't happen within the U.S. It's exported outside. They need those in order to be able to con uh, reconstruct the, the, the economy and have, you know, more need for pr production, you know. And in the case of Ecuador, we are dependent on the, on the U.S. dollar here. And for many years, luckily, if you look at it from the old paradigm, economic paradigm, the dollar has been going down. So Ecuador has managed to basically have a quote-unquote uh, undervalued or devalued currency what, you know, that allowed Ecuador to do a lot of you know, export of its products. But if the dollar becomes stronger, Ecuador's export will suffer from that. Of course, because um, you're, you're almost behaving like a province of or state of the United States in a way. Uh, worse than that, because if you're a province, you're within that territory, but uh, you are going to be moving according with that economy. But in this case, we're an isolated economy to a degree that depends on the currency being available here. And uh, there is a constant uh, escape of currency out of Ecuador because people, the rich people here, they take the money out uh, in the millions, in the you know, almost billions. And then that money that should have been used for local economy purposes, you know, the currency for day-to-day -day purchases, goes out. And one of the few reasons I believe why Ecuador doesn't have uh, such a bad uh, economy, I mean, it's not good, but is because there's a lot of money laundering going on because of the neighbors, the, the Colombian you know, drug lords, they, they bring in and launder the money here. So you still have some cash flowing in from illegal sources. And uh, because if you look at the export import export uh, rates here, they're they're losing that they're bleeding twenty five million dollars a day in Ecuador, which is a lot for a nation like Ecuador. So other the neighbors benefit because they come in, they perhaps have a a, a skull or a ghost company, they launder the money and they take it out again. Make something happen here, yeah. I mean, it becomes a you know a, a sort of quote unquote business that is sort of legal if you look at it, like hotels, resorts, you know, things, right, but, right. But then the, the money becomes you know cleaned. Yeah, most it, of those it, most yeah. of those companies have a higher revenue than they truly have, or they have no revenue, but money still comes in. Correct. <laughs> right. You know, and now that's happening with China as well. I mean, China holds a lot of the basic, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, bonds and U.S. currency. And China knows that if they actually uh, give it back to the U.S., the whole economy in the world will collapse. So they're actually what, what they're doing is investing those dollars in, in this case, South America and uh, exchanging for resources. They lend them money and in exchange, they get resources. Um, and that's that's happening here left and right. I mean, uh, Chinese uh, loans have been, since the current government is on, been really, really uh, on the up and up um, at rates that basically in debt Ecuador for the next 20 to 30 years with resources because then they don't send dollars out. They send oil, bananas, and other products. Well, because that's valuable, all those commodities, <clears throat> and they have to invest in, for example, in the United States, they're buying some of our largest hotels and companies that so they may not be invading us. They may not yeah. be dropping a bomb, but they're actually invading us 
investment-wise. They're actually taking over a lot. In, in, in fact, a lot of the federal land, uh, I have information that tells me that they are buying a lot of that land, and one of the goals is to create these foreign trade zones where they'll be able to have their own Chinese citizens. Instead of having them produce you know, a gadget in, in you know, Shanghai or what have you, bring them here, produce it here, because the biggest expense that they face is the shipping charge from there to here. But if you can do it here, almost like a sovereign piece of land from China, you have the edge. Yeah, of course. The edge because of the monetary system, the way it works, <clears throat> I mean, they're victims of that as, as well. They're victims of the way money works. And this is what I try to uh, write about. You know, I'm actually right now writing a novel that touches on that, sub- on that subject. It's the third one in this, in this series. <clears throat> the second one is banking. And the one that's out now is the whole thing with politics. It's like peeling the onion, you know. My question was, who is capable of doing these things that actually cause a lot of harm uh, to millions? And then how are they doing it, you know, with the banking, with the monetary system, with, through health? They're all connected. But how are they connected? And uh, how do they affect each other? Those are the questions I tried to raise in my in new series. And what you said about the United States always having to pr- be producing, because that's what keeps the engine of our economy going, even though we have lost millions of jobs to, to China and to Southeast Asia and, and other countries. But America has been at war 93% of the time, and this is the reason why that's happened. 200, what is it, 222 out of the 239-year history of this nation has been at war. You can look back on the time of you and I have been alive. We've always been in conflict. People think, but Mel, we're not fighting right now. Yes, we are. We're, we're back in Afghanistan. We're back in Iraq. And how many bases we have around the world. So if you take all that stuff out, the United States ceases to exist. Yeah, but for me, those are symptoms. You know, they're not the cause. Uh, and this is the whole issue with, with health. When you what is cause? Headache, what is the cause then? The cause behind it all is the, in this case, the monetary system makes it like that, makes forces you to do that. And it's not really production that runs the economy today. Market economy today is not run by production. If you read, I don't know if you've read David Corton uh, or Bernard Lietar uh, on their books on, you know, their global economy or monetary systems, um, <clears throat> market economy, uh, if you have Financial movement globally, look at it, in a global level, um, about 92% of the monetary financial currency movement back and forth is not due to production. It's due to the casino economy, stocks, bonds, futures, and all that. Uh, you mean legal gambling? Yeah, 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 yeah. Money, no, using money as a gambling tool. And of this <clears throat> stocks of Wall Street and uh, and all those stocks around the world uh, that companies are buying and selling their shares, they're actually only 2% of the casino economy. The casino economy, 98%, 97% of the casino economy is basically buying and selling money, different currencies. And you have to be a big player, what they call Forex. So really, if you look at uh, production Everything from food, petroleum, um, 
cars, agriculture, you know, in general terms, uh, also the drug uh, business, legal drug business, even the legal drug business, <clears throat> that all amounts to only about 2% of world monetary movement. Wait, 2% two, two so, of, of the illegal drug money is only 2%? No, 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 oh. no, I'm talking about the, in general terms, all those productive economies that are based on human labor or machine labor on getting products done or services, that the productive economy only amounts to 2% of the global trade, you know, money movement around, you know, you know, the chips computers in the U.S., the clearinghouse uh, interchange system in New York and New Jersey, they move $2 billion a minute. And that's not from production. Only about 2% is from production. The rest is buying and selling money. Oh, I, I see what you mean. Two percent is the, the real what we see production, and yeah. the balance or ninety-eight percent is this legal gambling, stock trading, you know, forex, uh, commodity trading, etc., futures, options, etc. Yeah, yeah. So, so really, uh, I mean, when it comes to that economy, this is the, the crazy thing about it that you say yes, all the workplaces, all those things—they're they're the ones that really allow us to be fed and allow us to to drive around, allow us to live. But those who are actually tapping into that and buying the currency, they're the ones that are making the billions a minute. But what about the multi-trillion dollar derivatives that are out there? What would happen if that would collapse? It depends on the on the laws. And the laws basically mean if you don't pay your debt, you give your collateral to the bank and it's the way they have people lose their collaterals you know it's, it's a rigged system and uh i mean and it's a regular system so by the way people, I, I love i love the uh, the rooster out there singing at this time of the day i know uh, sorry i can't shut it up that's okay that's okay and i got rabbits as well ringing on tree, and the dogs don't eat him so it's a bit like paradise um yeah the <clears throat> I mean, this this is the whole paradigm that we are looking at. We believe that our hard work is actually making the world financial world move. It doesn't. It makes our livelihood happen. But there is the system where our livelihood, every dollar we spend, goes towards paying interest towards to the banks, a certain interest in whatever we do. So even if we don't have a loan, we're still paying interest on that. Uh, I calculate more or less 50% of everything in general terms across the board uh, is an interest you know, paid to every dollar. But what kind of collateral, for example, I'm looking here at the total of $552.9 trillion. That's, the, that's according to the Bank of International Settlements. That's a notional value of all outstanding derivatives, derivative contracts. And I bet you... There is no collateral in this world that and we don't have enough resources in the entire <clears throat> world, even on tap diamond and a gold and coal that we've ever found that can amount to that figure. Yeah, that's the casino economy I'm talking about. So exactly. what, kind of, what kind of collateral <clears throat> does it have? It's just merely speculation. It's speculation on what will something will cost in the future, and it is uh, speculation on... How much taxes can the population pay in the next X number of years? You mean to, to pay the interest on all this debt? 
Yeah, yeah, it, it's, a, it's an exponential growth curve. Money can grow exponentially while the environment doesn't. These are the three growth curves you have. The natural growth curve, which grows exponentially in the beginning until it flattens out to fill the known environment. This is the Malthusian limitations of living systems. And um, then you have the, the, the linear growth of a factory that's going to produce so many machines. And then you have the exponential curve of uh, money through debt, through compound interest. And there always comes a point where the compound interest basically grows bigger than what the company can produce and then bigger what nature can produce. So that's one of the main reasons why we have ecological problems and why you have to go at any cost. A company has to go at any cost to go and get the oil out, get the gold out, because they're going to try to pay the financial system for this. And this is the 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 system that basically eats up the planet. And uh, and it's the monetary system makes it happen. So in order for that, because it's impossible, then you have to destroy what's there through wars and then try to go again into it, into producing something new. But until the monetary system, basically at the global level, actually collapses, this will not change. And while there is still an ecology that supplies the resources and people that supply the labor and, and the work, the system will probably continue until something major happens. This is something that uh, Warren Buffett said from Berkshire Hathaway regarding derivatives. He calls them a financial weapon of mass destruction. He said this, quote, the derivatives genie is now well out of the bottle. And these instruments will almost certainly multiply in variety and number until some event makes their toxicity clear. Central banks and governments have so far found no effective way to control or even monitor the risks posed by these contracts. In my view, derivatives are financial weapons of mass destruction, carrying dangers that, while now latent, are potentially lethal. Unquote. So this is pretty much the Achilles heel of the world, isn't it? Yes and no, because if all those uh, debts, this, these uh, toxic debts, don't have collateral, it's just air money. Don't then nobody will lose, really. Well, isn't this what we have? For example, <laughs> every home owned in America, for example, those yeah. mortgage documents, the money that came to the bank. Nothing. I mean, the, the only thing there's, yes, there's collateral with the, the, the actual property, but where the money came from, that came out of thin air. And no, that came out of the future. It's like back to the future kind of story, you know, but the future today, they're going to put the price of whatever commodity to what it should be valued in 15, 20 years. And they make money based on that future, hoping it will happen. Uh, and this is where how they create the money. I mean, um, they create it about uh, not just on a on a collateral that exists that you can actually physically measure, but on a collateral that they're actually saying this is going to be valued in the future. So let's make money on that. And this is also how the Fed basically tries to print the money because you have printed money uh, worldwide. Each nation prints their money, or they use other nations' money. Euros, for example, for different nations, the dollar for different nations. Um, and you have the central banks printing that uh, money physically. How that happens is a different st story. But then that is only one part of how uh, money gets created. 
Uh, the other part is how commercial banks, through their loans, create most of the money in the world. Only about 3%, I believe, or, or, or even less nowadays, of the print of the money in existence, monetary mass, is actually printed money. The rest is digital money. That has been created by um, commercial banks. What percentage would you say of the money in circulation is, is truly what it is? In, in other words, the money that we have out there, all that did, the $592.9 trillion in derivatives versus the amount of in circulation. The circulation must be a figment of that amount, isn't it? Yeah, and that figment is also debt money. It doesn't mean that because it's printed, it's not based on the debt. I mean, oh, this no, is no. the whole that's why reserve that's banking. Exactly. That's why, call, uh, that's why it's called a Federal Reserve note. Yeah. Uh, and the note is basically, like I say, 1% or 2% of the U.S. dollar existence in, out there. U.S. dollar existence, most of it is not notes. It is digital accounting money. One thing I haven't been able to understand, and maybe you can enlighten me because you're, you're more of a well-versed when it comes to this. Why haven't we seen hyperinflation in the United States? I mean, I, I know that they stop in quantitative, quantitative easing number th third, three or four. Shouldn't that, the flooding of money, and they do it all the time, manipulating the stock market, you know, injecting money into the economy that way. Why haven't we seen hyperinflation if they're diluting the value of the dollar is it because more and more countries are buying our currency and therefore keeping the the uh, the supply at level um inflation occurs when you have for example you have a dollar for a mandarin let's make it simple mm -hmm. uh when you create two dollars and you have only one mandarin, that creates an inflation rate that will make That's right. it go for two mandarins. But that is under the idea that this money has entered the productive economy, and it hasn't. In in two thousand eight, during the during the collapse uh, of the of the dollar uh, and I mean the economy, then uh, what happens is they created uh, trillions of dollars of money, as you remember. However, hardly any of that money actually entered the actual economy. Where did the money go to? The money went to bailing out companies and banks. They didn't put the money into buying mandarins. They kept it. They paid the banks so they could bail out. And those banks are then uh, not putting money into, into circulation. The money is not in circulation, or at least not within the U.S. territory. That's when they go and they export the money. By buying stuff, you know, buying large land, large companies and other things overseas or financing, in this case, wars, you know. So that's a trick. You don't, if you can, if you create money that somebody suddenly owns but doesn't put it into circulation, then you won't feel an inflation, not as strong as you would have it if you really gave everybody the dollars that they need to survive. Are, are you saying that if the banks had released or had uh, softened their credit policies and allowed more credit to come out because they were floating in, in cash, but they were yeah. not opening the gates. Are you saying that if no. they had opened the gates, inflation would have ensued or hyperinflation? Yeah. Uh, you see, um, the analysis I made in my book on, on monetary systems and money as an engineering uh, study, not as politics or as uh, 
economics even. It's just about money being uh, technology like a light bulb or a carburetor. You have three main functions to money. One of them is the means of exchange we'll talk about, meaning if I want to put this money to use, I need to spend it. because I can't eat it. I can't drink it. I can't wear it. I have to spend that dollar in order to get something that I will with real value that I can actually use, right? Uh, the other function of money is um, what they call um, the measure of value. You measure value of a house saying it's worth X number of dollars, 20,000, 30,000, half a million, or a car. You, it's like a measuring stick. You measure the value of things based on a monetary uh, how can I say it? Um, yeah, uh, like a meter, you know. Uh, if you're measuring uh, a house, you measure it with a meter. It's so many meters wide by tall. And this is also one of the functions of money in terms of measuring value. You have the other uh, function of money, which is the one where you are actually storing value for the future. So if you want to store value with money, you take that money out of circulation. You're going to use it in the future. Um, the whole Forex um, uh, game, basically, is you have a currency, the dollar, that against the yen or the euro is worth so much. You have different measuring sticks, and they fluctuate. Um, it's like saying uh, you have a, a distance to measure, like from... New York to Los Angeles, it's so many thousands of miles today. But because your measuring stick suddenly fluctuates in value, because it's also a measure of value and a store of value, then tomorrow it might be worth or the distance becomes longer or shorter. This is what happens with the monetary system. It's actually, a, it's actually crazy if you look at it. Um, if you have a store of value um how can I say, uh, function to money, then it means you are not supposed to spend it. You're supposed to keep it somewhere and that people put it in the bank and the bank then uses it for its own purposes. But you're storing the value, you're taking out of circulation. So what happened in 2008, they created the money, but didn't go into the function means of exchange. It went to the function store of value or you export it outside of the economy that would actually implode because it would actually flood a market with greenbacks or digital backs. Whenever I hear people saying that China will want to cash in, I really don't buy it. That would be an act of war. The United States will, that would crumble the economy. Then we have the petrodollar, we have the BRICS, which by the way, don't you find it interesting that we haven't heard too much about BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa, I mean, we know what's happening in, in Brazil right now. They're going through their own political issues. Don't you find it interesting that all of a sudden the BRICS talk has ceased for a while? Yeah, I mean, they're all playing the same game, really. I mean, these are different people trying to say, hey, I, I want to put the bar as well. If this guy is making a lot of money with a bar, I can put a bar myself, you know. And then it's used when I get the customers, and that's that's – that's really the overlying paradigm. And what I'm basically saying is, well, how does it work? Why is it working like that? And um, Yeah, but if that bar is going to be competition to me and I want yeah. monopoly, 
I'm not going to let you create your no. own bar. Of course, and that's what the whole monetary war is about. Um, however, these things is what I'm realizing. A lot of people don't have time to think or look at it. Or because, like you said, you're too much in this bubble or this um, world where those things are not discussed, not even in universities, then uh, your public, the general public, will not understand that suddenly today they have an economic problem that is not of their own making. It's not their fault. It's not a mea culpa situation. They're in a system where these big players are playing their games and you end up being part of it. And this is not just in the monetary system that we're talking about right now, but also with education, with health, and in politics, you know. So this is what I'm trying to bring little by little out to the public in a very entertaining way, if possible, uh, with characters that they can uh, see act in, uh, as it were, in a, in a real-life situation, and how they find out about these things. Plus... Because you're writing in quote unquote fiction, you can't have the the, the the critics out there blasting you because you're writing fiction. Exactly. And uh, I mean, uh, I am also writing nonfiction, uh, but how many people are going to read that book? Maybe not a hundred, a few thousand. Um, a thriller, I hope that a lot of people read it because. One of the studies done is that if you want to solve a problem, at least 6% of the population uh, have to realize that there is a problem. Most people don't believe there is a problem. There's no something is not quite right, but they don't know it's a problem. They think, oh, that's where it is. And these paradigms are the ones that we are basically uh, dependent on to survive. We're dependent on an education to allow us to be able to reach a moment in our life where we can actually employ ourselves for money. Um, so it's, it's all interconnected. What is a paradigm shift thriller? And is this genre becoming more popular? A paradigm shift thriller is a subgenre within the thriller genre that I uh, sort of invented. I've been analyzing and studying, I mean, writing for quite a few years. And I'm also writing about writing for myself at the moment. Uh, and I realized when I was publishing in, in Germany, in, in Europe, they were translating my books into German, that uh, there are a few uh, issues there with uh, genres and subgenres. Like, again, we're part of this market economy. If you want to be able to live from your writing uh, successfully, hopefully, or at least make a living with that, you have to be within a genre, which is a niche in the market that people go and say, oh, I'm going to buy this now. It's like, I like uh, uh, this type of wine versus the other one, or, you know, or this type of potato versus the other one. So you have this niche where you can write in, and there's a group of people who are interested in that. If you're successful in that genre, or actually a subgenre, really, um, you can make a living with it. However, if you are writing in a specific subgenre, and it happened to quite a few of the writers that I liked and admired, after the fifth or sixth book, it basically becomes stale. Uh, the novel, because of the rules of the genre, in many cases become uh, the same story told in a different way, 
again and again by the same writer. You know, I didn't want that to happen to me. So I become, I, I started studying and looking into how genres are created, how, when are, you no, know, how, how that happens, how you make a subgenre from a genre. And I realized in one of my studies that, uh, there is only space, uh, according to this guy who did the research on that, I forget his name, there's only space for three big ones within a given subgenre. So the three big ones basically um, monopolize 80% of the number of books sold out there. And the other 20% is spread out within all the other writers within the subgenre. So if you want to make a living, you should be one of the three big ones, or you better, you're not even a player, you know. But you have to work really hard just to make ends meet. So I said, well, yeah. So what I what I realized there is that uh, I, I don't, I want to write to be able to explore and be free, right, in my writing. However, if I'm stuck with this paradigm where if you're in a subgenre, you've got to keep on writing in the subgenre. Otherwise, you won't be able to make it. If you want to skip out of it, it's going to be really hard to break in into the market again. Uh, yet, if I become successful, I basically become uh, a prisoner of a jail of my own making. I said, how, well, how can I break that? I have to be in a subgenre. You don't want to write something different, explore different topics because I'm a curious person. And I have, like we spoke before, the views of the world which are different. And I don't want us to be stuck within one. So paradigm shift thrillers are basically thrillers that I in, in invented where the rules of the thriller is to actually explore a different paradigm with every novel. And that forces me to, uh, you know, research and, and try to see what the paradigm shift would be in that specific topic, let's say politics or, uh, I'm talking big ones, high concept, uh, education, um, health, uh, monetary systems, banking. You give us and an example. The Galapagos agenda, for example. What, first of all, where did the muse come from? The, the, the material, in a way, I mean, I, I know the fiction the fiction part came from your own imagination, but the actual concept concept of what you, you were trying to uh, shift in paradigm, what exactly were you trying to accomplish? What do people get away with when they read these types of novels? In the case of the Galapagos Agenda, um, the idea, the central idea is, what if we're governed by psychopaths? The first time I heard the word psychopath uh, came through a friend of mine, and I'm like curious. Okay, what the, what does it mean? You know, why is it so important? Because psychopaths are serial killers. They they go out there, and I'm not really interested in those subjects. You know, I have read a few books, but the feeling you get from some of them leaves you with a sour, you know, uh, taste of blood, basically. You know. Yeah. The lowest of the lowest of human nature, in a way, not even human nature. This is almost an animal that's out there killing people. But then I realized that there is this other uh, being that's called the clinical psychopath, not the criminal psychopath. And it so happens that they are everywhere. They they are people that look normal. They are not criminals as such, but because of the system we live in. Uh, the society we live in, they have traits that make them successful in certain areas. And in terms of the Galapagos agenda is politics and positions of power. 
And like you mentioned before, we believe that nature uh, is doing it wrong, so we try to fix it. So what happened in this case? Apparently, if you read uh, Andrew uh, Lobachevsky and Robert Hare and a few other writers who talk about this subject of uh, psychopaths, you realize that it's between 1% and 4% of the world population are actually psychopaths, are actually clinical psychopaths, not criminal. They may end up doing criminal things at the end of their time, but that's when they're in destructive mode at the end, you know. Um, and these are, they can be your neighbor, it can be your family member, uh, and they have a mask of norma normality that you don't recognize that they can actually do stuff that normal people wouldn't do. And those people tend to rise up in in positions of power, either in politics or in, in corporate world. The calculation is that about 20% uh, of the top CEOs in the world are actually clinical psychopaths, that about 10% of Wall Street employees are considered clin clinical psychopaths. I don't know what the percentages of politicians, but it seems to be very, very high. Um, and I, I asked myself, uh, well, we don't believe that they can be up there doing those things. But once you see what their traits are, will you will recognize it and then understand, hey, I, I know now why we are capable of doing the things that they're blaming that normal people do, that they say human beings are like animals, you let them uh, free and then they, they, they start killing each other. That's not true. We are not like that. It's a few people out there that are like that, that create a system that makes us behave like that. If I go out on the road here to uh, drive to Quito, traffic can be, you know, pretty crazy. And you almost have to behave like a psychopath to make it in traffic. You know, you're forced <laughs> to go into behaving like that, you know. Uh, and that happens with, with politics or with the corporate world. If you want to make the corporation, once again, the money uh, connection, uh, win or have profits, then you have to do whatever you need to make it happen. And that means and includes maybe getting rid of people in certain places or destroying nature or all that. Well, it's survival, it's survival of the fittest, and we have to take our one and only break uh, in a minute. But let me just say this. You know, people who are listening to us may be thinking, well, Mel, Leonardo, do we have any solutions? And the answer to all of this is absolutely yes. And I've discussed it, even though we're releasing this show on Veritas, I've discussed this on Sanitas many, many times especially with one interview I did regarding conscious capitalism. And believe me, folks, I'm the least from a socialist that you can ever meet. I'm a conscious capitalist in case people throw stones at me because I, you know, I charge for subscriptions. But I invest in companies that are socially conscious, you know, companies that really take care of the environment. When people speak, even people demonize Walmart. Let me pick on them for a moment. Walmart, in the past few months, they started carrying organic products for the first time in forever. Why? Because people were going elsewhere. So we have the ability, and I know even though it's 2% of the entire economy, and aside from the legal gambling, but we do have the power. The problem is people don't think they have the power. And you need to listen to people like Leonardo and some of the people I interview to realize that you definitely have power the power. But when we come back, I want to just also, I don't want to stay only talking about the economy. This could be, you know, very academic to many people. It may tune them off. Uh, but I want to discuss health too, even though this is not sanitas. I want to discuss what you see 
from your perspective in terms of new energy solutions, I know one person, I'm not going to disclose the name, and you tell me if I shouldn't even say this, but I'm so privileged that every so often I get an email or somebody who listens to us that I had no idea. For example, the inventor of the CD-ROM is a fan of of two of our radio programs, and I had no idea. Well, he was one of the ones who connected me with Leonardo Wild. He could be working on something very important. And I know other people in South America are working on new energy movements that could revolutionize our entire world. And I wonder, and I'll take your answer on the other side, why we're seeing this meltdown in Saudi Arabia where where they're, they're, they, the kingdom is putting their billions of dollars into something else other than oil. Are we getting ready to release something that's going to be a paradigm-shifting event? And I'll take your answer on the other side. How can people buy the Galapagos Agenda and all your other books and learn more about your work, Leonardo? Well, the Galapagos Agenda you can get at Amazon at the moment. Um, we will find the address or the link in on my website or I don't know how you work with that, uh, Mel. Uh, it's available there. It's called the Galapagos Agenda, of course. You can go and you find it there on Amazon. The next books I am still um, basically uh, writing, uh, even though I have I have finished the second one in the series. I'm going to be shopping that uh, around at the moment. I'm going to attend Thriller Fest this July in New York. And... Uh, and pitch again because of various reasons I can uh, tell you another day but uh, the idea is that I will be bringing out a book a year if possible on each of these major subjects that we can talk like you said uh, at the other end Um, and uh, at the moment I mean I have books in Spanish that you can get probably not in the States but here in Ecuador I don't know if anybody's listening they're in Spanish of course the first one in English was Galapagos Agenda. And uh, are you still there? I am still here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Great. Folks, don't go anywhere. for a moment. No problem. That happens. We're here with Leonardo Weil directly from Ecuador, and we have much more to discuss when we come back with lots of solutions. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full-body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy.